Well, friends, it's 2024, and it's going to be a big year for politics and hopefully for education. We want to talk today about what we think should be the predictions. What should we what should we hope for? What do we want to happen this year? We're going to talk about it on the Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and superintendent of a network of public charter schools in the South. Ravi, Happy New Year. How you doing, man? I'm good, man. Happy New Year to you. I'm good. I'm out here in Costa Rica, just, you know, surfing, riding. It's a hard life. It's tough in these streets. Dude, it has been, it has been windy. It has been hard to surf. God, I hate when that happens. I know. And I'm in Minnesota, so I, I hate when that happens, when the wind gets in the way of my surfing. So Ravi, you're a pretty planful person. You've got a couple of things going on in your life that I think are really interesting to me for like a beginning of the year show. And like, number one, you're a planful person. And it seems like your life is really ordered by goals and by progress making. Yes. So it seems to me like at the beginning of the year, you probably have a lot figured out about like what your year should look like. I have a productivity influencer that I follow. His name is Ali Abdal. Oh, I'm a huge Ali Abdal fan. I actually just talked about him on the Lost Debate show. I was I was asked who's my favorite internet personality and I named him. I'm very much looking forward to his book coming out this year. He's amazing. Have you seen his his How to Have the Best Year for 2024? No, it's funny. I, I saw the it, it popped up on my YouTube this morning, but I didn't watch it. I, I encourage everybody to watch it because he is so clear and to the point about how you can order your life and how you know you can how you can structure your life with real tools to to have the best year that you possibly want. And he has three methods in that particular video. I'm not going to go through them all, but people should check it out. And basically, it's you know it's a way so that life doesn't happen uh, like a surprise to you or whatever. So I imagine you're the type of person that has some of that going on <laughs> in your life for one. Uh, and see, I, I didn't even know that you you know Ali. I'm a like big fan of Ali. And look at that. And then the second thing you have going on in your life is that you have you've done so much in democratic pro- politics, like the stuff with the arena and getting people elected. And it's going to be a big political year, right? Yes. And I feel like it's just messy already. To me, it just feels like, you know, if someone were to ask me to predict, I don't know enough. <laughs> that would yeah. be my thing is like, it just feels super messy right now. So why don't we start there? Like, what are you planning for for this year? And especially around the political stuff? Yeah, I'm planning, and this is going to sound like a joke, but it's not. I'm planning for a very, very bad end of the year for our country. And uh, I'm, I'm both like working and trying as much as I can within the arena context and, and in others to avoid a bad outcome in whichever small way I can play a part. Did you say that you think <laughs> you just now said a strong possibility, but before, did you say you thought that was likely to happen? Yes. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. I mean, there's so many things to unpack in what you just said. So one, I wonder what it means about meritocracy in the United States when Biden by all kind of performance metrics is the the better of the two candidates and Trump by all performance metrics and goodness for the soul of the country is the worst possible candidate and it's likely that he would win that's not even about really Biden and and Trump that's about America what does it say to you that like 50% of Americans would rather a revenge tour that in, implants authoritarian, underqualified people into high positions 
in the country, like loads up the country with people in high positions. I, I mean, last time with Trump, he put a, a blogger into a lifelong judge position, right? You know, judgeship. Like there's a guy who is a blogger who's going to be judging over people, you know, for a long period of time. And that to me is symbolic of a lot of like the death of meritocracy in the United States. Cause we talk a lot about it, especially on the right about merit. But I mean, what you're saying is true. I mean, the rip on Biden is that he's old, which is ageist as hell. Let me let me at least say ageism is one of the few isms that we should allow in American life. Because if he was 120, you wouldn't be calling it ageism. You'd be like, yeah, that is impossible for somebody to do the job. So the, everybody has a line that they draw. Like in contrast to racism or whatever, racism is always bad. It's always invalid. Whereas ageism, like if you're literally cannot function as a human, which will happen to every one of us, if we're lucky enough to live to old age, then there are certain jobs that everybody agrees you cannot do. And actually, it's even embedded within in certain respects that you have to, you know, for instance, you know, get relicensed, for example, if you fly airplanes, or, you know, I have to, I have to keep every five years, I have to get my vision tested to drive a car. And I think to be president of the United States, you would be the oldest president ever. And at least to my eyes, and the vast majority of Democrats and Americans, he seems like he's lost not just one step, perhaps many steps. And I think even if it weren't true that he lost a step, the fact that so many people believe it is a relevant point politically. Like this is not about what's objectively true. That's the point I was trying to make, though. The point that I was trying to make really was, are people into reality? Like what you just said, it doesn't matter what is really true. It just matters what people believe. But I actually think it's irrelevant because I do think he's lost a step. <laughs> like like I, I look at him a lot and I, I watch his videos a lot and I think it's absolutely true that he, he just doesn't, when I see him, I don't see a man who makes sense, can't complete his sentences. And like, yes, he's rambled and he's had all sorts of issues being clear historically, but I've been watching him basically my whole adult life. And it is very obvious to me that he is degenerating and he's degenerating in a way that I think is very risky because the person who has to go against Trump has to be clearer and they have to think quickly. They have to deal with all the, like the avalanche of lies that Trump is going to throw their way. And they're going to have to prosecute the case of the American public that's skeptical of his record and all that. And I just cannot, I, I don't see Biden doing that effectively. So you really believe that Biden, when I hear that he has declined and he's in decline, I feel like, you know, he's age appropriate. You know, he's he speaks the way that a person I mean, he's 81. Right. So he's I, I mean, literally, that's like four years older than Trump, by the way. <laughs> so uh, apparently, I guess a whole bunch can happen in four years. I guess four years is like this huge difference. But it's also different people age differently. Like, will Trump look the same as Biden 81? I have no idea. Trump sounds crazy when he talks. He doesn't finish his sentences. He uses words that don't make any sense. He says things that don't make any sense. He just gave a speech not long ago where he talked as if Barack Obama was still the president, right? Like he, he says very bizarre, weird things. For sure. But I, I don't think that Democrats would be smart to play the they're both old and and because like I, one of them is president. I'm not talking as a Democrat. I just want to say I'm not talking as a Democrat. I'm talking as a, an intelligent American. I'm not talking about a person of the parties. I know that people go for the they go for the, the facile more than they go for the real. These are two old guys, two very old guys, neither of whom are making as much sense as they should. But one of them has a better policy set 
than the other one has. And that's the, I want Americans just to think this way. This is my, my 2024 just wish for Americans. Stop doing the tabloid thinking. Tabloid thinking is ruining the United States of America. Start thinking like a scientist, a cold, sober scientist who understands psychology and politics and economics and all of those things. And ask yourself a very just plain question. Which person represents the better policy set for us all, for us all individually, as a person who wants to be a free American, wants to be healthy and educated and live just a good life? The tabloid thinking is killing us, right? When people complain about the media, I usually kind of roll my eyes like, oh my God, yeah, the media, whatever. But they are making us dumber, I think, in some ways as a country because, uh, listen, it's not to poo-poo what you're saying right now around the age thing. I think they're both old. And I do think like one thing, I don't know how to talk about this because you said you think that ageism should be allowed. And like, you know, I feel a little, as a person who's getting older, <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. But I will say this much, looking at Feinstein and some of these other Democrats who hung on forever, they made me mad. Do you think Michael Jordan, you know, nobody's saying Michael Jordan should still suit up and play for the Bulls. Like age comes for everybody. And the question is, what are you trying to do with your life? Right? I'm not saying we should lock people up. I would take a person like Biden than a young, stupid person. Yes. If you ran Eric Trump, against Biden, I would take Biden in his old age over Eric Trump, who seems like a moron, right? Like, 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 you know, your age does matter. What you're saying, I absolutely think is true. I do want to tell this quick story. Years ago, when they showed the oldest person living, the oldest living person in the world, I believe it was a person in India, and they showed the guy walking, smoking the cigarette. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, he's like 101, 102. I don't know how old he was. He's like over 100 years old. And this dude is walking like miles every day because he had been doing that his whole life and smoking. So there you go, right? Like, like I, you, when you say people age differently, I think it's true. Yeah. And I just think like every person deals, I'm 40 years old. There are opportunities that are not available to me than when I was 25 years old. Like, it's just the facts. And I think that's what I mean when I say ageism is one of the few isms that should be allowed in our vernacular. Now, that doesn't mean that you should find nonsensical ways to discriminate on people on the basis of age or dismiss people who are old just because they're old. But I also don't think that's as much of a problem. Like, Society is run by old people. Look at the U.S. Senate. Look at the House of Representatives. Look at governors. Look at the presidency, right? Like, I don't have any question about whether it's like we're like somehow punishing the old. Like, it's the opposite. We're, we're allowing too many people like Dianne Feinstein, who are basically walking corpses who won't give up their seats. Don't say that. That's terrible. Who refuse to give up their seats because they're of their ego and do great damage to the American people. I mean, look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Everybody celebrates Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but she had an opportunity to retire during a Democratic administration. She did not. And that cost a seat. That's That actually was a decision. And you could draw a straight line from that to Dobbs, right? So like... These are decisions that people, we can say, like, it, like we need to worry about people's feelings or whatever, but, you know, RBG's feelings are secondary to me. Joe Biden's feelings are secondary to me than the impact of any decision about whether they should stay in their office. And well, let's just say, I don't blame him 100% because if he wasn't 
to run for president, I think Newsom's the only person waiting in the wings who could jump in quickly and hit the ground running. Like Dean Phillips from Minnesota right now is running, right? <laughs> He's running like, and for those of you who don't know, Dean Phillips here in Minnesota is like a Nepo baby from, from an alcohol magnet, but he's running against Biden for all the reasons you're saying. He's saying he thinks he's making a really bad decision to run and it's personal and you know all these things and someone has to do it. If he said tomorrow, listen, guys, I agree with you. I think that there's only one person who would be ready to jump in and go and have an actual campaign that could raise money and, and make the thing happen. Who wouldn't lose to Trump or to Ron DeSantis, who is you know a far, far cry from where Trump is? You know what I find interesting, and, and listen, I don't know if this is what you're what you're intending to do. Maybe it's because you are thinking from the Democratic side and you want them to be smarter. But I I did notice that you didn't say like Mitch McConnell, who had like a total freeze moment multiple times now, where in the middle of a sentence he just stopped and froze and didn't know what the next thing to say, what he should say was. You know, so yeah, my the presumption is like yeah, I'm I'm going at this from the framework of I want the candidates I like to win. I want to be careful because I don't want to step on any C3 <laughs> stuff here, but like I am, I'm going at it from the perspective of what my personal preference is for who should win or not. Right. Like not from the question of who's better at governing, although I do think that's relevant and that's where the McConnell question is very relevant. The question of Trump's sanity and coherence is very relevant so short version, I'm worried about this year and I'm planning for bad things to happen at the end of the year. That's how I'm looking at this year. Well, I want to roll from that into how that affects what the thing that we care most about, which is the education of American children. But before I say that, I, I want to just reiterate my main point is I hope this year is a year where some group of Americans start thinking like just intelligent people and, and tune out of the, the wrestling style uh, politics and and make a commitment, like make a commitment to yourself to be science based, evidence based, to talk about what actually is not not the fog of politics, you know, that we get so wrapped up in. Because this is the way I, I approach it as this year. I want a certain set of policies to win. So if you were running Kid Rock, who's young and dynamic versus a ham sandwich, I would ask the same question. Kid Rock versus a ham sandwich. Okay, so what is this ham sandwich offering? Well, the ham sandwich is offering you responsible economic policy, your civil liberties protected, all people are welcome, a great immigration policy that isn't based on racism and nativism and white supremacy, just a whole host of things, you know, maybe possibly Medicare for all, possibly free college for folks, possibly, you know, a better safety net for people as they age, then I'm going for the ham sandwich. If those are the policies that would, would win, like, because I'm not a big fan of Joe Biden. I just want to be very clear about this. Like, I have no, the way that people feel about Donald Trump, I just don't understand it because I don't have that for Trump or for Biden or for anybody. Like that kind of cult of personality thing. I don't have it. And I think Biden is really, I think the thing that's hurting him the most is that young people are really turned off by him right now for a host of reasons. But, you know, the Gaza thing, I think, is going to be, I think he's making a calculation that it won't matter much and that the people, the big money donors and others uh, will appreciate his stance of being a Zionist. I think young people are, you know, going to have a problem with that. And even if you shave off a small percentage of voters for, for anything, it makes a big difference. Like losing any like small sliver. Of, uh, and I think he's already lost a lot of young people. And I say that just to say still, tell me what the policy set would win if he wins versus what would be the policy set for Donald Trump. And what you just said, or what you said earlier, 
to me, scares the hell out of me of if it's a revenge tour and it's not really about policies that make us all better, like make the country like better as a whole. I don't know that like staring down four years of that should sound good to anybody. So the Democrats could run a ham sandwich right now and kind of saying to what you just said, it kind of sounds like you're saying that they are running a ham sandwich. It's a weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> now, the question is, what is it going to mean for the children, Chris? Yeah. You know, I feel like this is what's important to me about when you say the children. There's a book, I think it's William Gormley from Georgetown who wrote a book that's about how public policy disfavors children. And the reason that it disfavors children is because all the people with power are old people. And that's why you have more focus on like end of life care. Over the years, we've like put more money into end of life care and old people concerns that we never used to put into it. And Gormley kind of, I think, makes the argument that that's a policy shift because children have no lobby. And it happened over years, right? Like we started, you know, instead of letting people just die of old age, we started creating all kinds of ways to keep them alive and whatever. So we usually talk about child policy in terms of education. But they're like, you know, what Gormley would say is like, there's a child agenda, like overall. And I think that involves a lot of things. And I don't know that politicians on either side are caring very much about what that child agenda should be. I actually don't even know what Biden's child agenda is, except for things like early ed, you know, early, more money for early childhood ed. And when you look at where the money goes for even for early ed, it's in staff. Like, like old people think about everything in terms of jobs. Like they don't think about it in terms of what, like what's best for kids. So, so my prediction for this year is all the things I care about are going to be, they're going to fare terribly. How do we know how kids are doing? What's our evidence? Where do we get the evidence from? What tools are we using to get that evidence? Testing and assessment is out the door. Paying attention to actual child issues versus the, the jobs of the people who serve children is probably what's going to take place the most. I don't mean to sound like a negative person in the beginning of the year, but I'm looking for the positive agenda points. Yeah, let me give a positive that you're not going to view as a positive, (laughs) but I do as a positive. I think the most interesting things that are going to happen in education in 2024 are going to happen outside of the government run schools. So I think that's going to be ESAs. I think it's going to be homeschooling. I think it's going to be artificial intelligence. I think it's going to be the continued march of improvement of the many tools and online forums to learn, whether it's for kids or adults. You know, you and I talked about Ali Abdallah, right? I was just saying to Ricky the other day, the quality of what is on YouTube right now, everybody talks about social media and how garbage it is or whatever. The quality of what is on YouTube educationally is off the charts. Like yesterday I was, uh, I was for reasons that I won't go into, but I was trying to figure out something about protein folding. Like there are like four structures of protein folding, like uh, depending on the complexity of how it folds. And I was stuck on this point about what's called secondary folding. And it was just, I was just reading a book about it and a book can only tell you so much. And it describes like, well, what is secondary protein folding? I was like, or secondary structure uh, for proteins. And I was like, all right, well, what? I couldn't picture it. I literally just Google, I went on YouTube, Khan Academy described it. I was like, oh, that's a pretty good description. And then there's just some random guy who popped up on the right who had like a million views on a six minute video. And I was a chemistry major in college, but I hadn't touched the stuff in so long. And I clicked this video and it was the clearest, shortest description of this with visuals that you could ever imagine. I'm like, this is better than what the Harvard class equivalent of this is, no doubt. And I understood the concept. And I was like, when I was studying chemistry in 2003 in Binghamton, 
none of this was available to me. So like the quality of that textbook in front of me and the teacher in front of me was the only indicator. And I was privileged enough to be in a university setting. Whereas now anybody has access to that information. Now the question is, can you organize that in a way that creates the credential that creates the incentive to finish that can distinguish between who knows it and who doesn't know it. I think that's the sort of next phase now is to say, how do you take all this wealth of information that's online and organize it in a way that actually makes some kind of sense? But I am bullish on the quality of the stuff that's out there. And I think like whether it's for young kids or adults, it's never been easier to learn something if you can manage your own attention or get into the right kind of system. Okay. So take the optimism, Chris, don't fight it. Well, no, I mean, listen, I, I tend to be very cynical about industry jargon and industry wishful thinking. And I think right now in the philanthropic industry that we are in, everybody's bullish on, it's all going to be AI. It's all going to be homeschooling. It's all going to be like, you know, the, it, the moment has arrived that we've been talking about for years. 75 million students enrolled in the United States, according to the census gov 3 million homeschool students in the United States, which someone else do the math on me of what fraction of students that is. 600,000 that are currently participating in voucher or scholarship or tax credit programs, hoping with some of our ed choice people to get that to about a million over the next year. So all in all, all said, all in, we're probably talking about 4 million to four and a half million kids out of, I thought the number before had been 50 million, but I think that might be wrong. But what the census.gov says, it says in fiscal year 2021, US spending per student was about 14,000, and that was for an enrollment of 49 million. 50 million, just about total school enrollment experienced a growth of 1.3 million from 21 to 22, reaching a total of 75 million. So whatever. Yeah, but just, we, you and I both think charters are important. It's what, 3.7, 3.8 million last time I checked. What I was saying is it's the most interesting work will be happening in there. Not that this is going to replace the impact of what happens within public schools. I just happen to think that those worlds that I just described would be more nimble and faster to do the interesting things and in many cases improve upon the model Whereas I happen to have a bearish view of government-run schools to do the interesting thing fast enough this year. Okay, so I was probably misconstruing what you were saying. I thought you were saying that for American children overall, that that was like where the action was going to be. I mean, and if it's like 4 million children, something good might happen out of 50 million kids is the outlook. That's still a, ter a very terrible outlook then. Because what I care about is American children. So if I think, if you're telling me that there's 50 million kids in the United States and about 4 million of them are possibly, which we have very little evidence of, are going to experience something pretty cool in the next year or so, which I don't think it's going to go that smooth and be that easy. And I don't think we have any evidence that it would. Well, then that still leaves me with the question of, okay, then cool. So what about that other 45 million? Now, I don't think that it's true that that other 45 million, and no one believes this, uh, especially the, those of us that are public school parents, that it's all terrible for them and that there's nothing going on and that like, you know, government schools and government run and whatever, you know, the, the Milton Friedman kind of attack on like public things is is just terrible. None of us believe that because we have kids in these schools and many of us have chosen good schools that have like great things going on and way more things going on than anything that's being offered to us by the whole kind of like, you know, Ayn Rand side of the education world, right? So I'm just wondering for that 
45 million and that other million, and really it's it's all 50 million to me, are going to be needing attention on are they eating? Do they have safe and clean water? Do, what type of living environments and conditions are they in? Are we attending to their basic mental health needs? Because there's a big, there's a massive mental health problem. How are we going to catch kids up? is my bigger question. I have been fascinated with the question of newer, smarter, innovative, how can we be innovative, ed tech, all that. I've been that guy for so long. But right now, I had been saying it over the pandemic for a couple of years. My biggest thing that kept me up every night was we're going, we're going to have a massive remediation project that nobody is planning for. Nobody has a scalable solution for. Nobody has like really really put their mind to it. I kept saying that over the two years of the pandemic, and this was part of my political change. Part of my political change was looking around, seeing some of my best friends still talking this kind of like, you know, weed head stuff around like, you know, innovation and all that. I'm thinking you have millions of kids falling behind right now. You have very little tracking data. You can't even find some of them. Like you have about a million of them that are just missing and you can't even find them. As the United States, that's our future. So if I said to you, this is our future, these are all, all these people is, are the future of the country and you don't even know where many of them are at. You definitely don't know where they're all at academically or what they're learning or what they have or haven't learned, which to me calls for some sort of Marshall plan, some sort of big, smart plan for number one, getting the data. Like what is going on with these kids, right? Like, where are they, you know? Like, yeah, well, well, I mean, you're making the argument for me. I mean, you talked about how all the great things that are happening in these government-run schools, and then you, we're talking about the fact that they don't know where all these kids are. And to me, that is an indictment on the system. But it also, like, there's a, there's a question of the ought versus the is, right? My point was in the is, not in the ought. I would agree with you on the, is, the ought. Like, we should have a Marshall Plan. We should be urgent about it. We should find those kids. My prediction is we will not make a dent in any meaningful way this year on that. I, you know, we talked, we were just talking about the politicians and the politics and the predictions that nothing like meaningful in the, the areas that you care about is going to be addressed by our politicians. The politicians are the ones who are responsible for these schools, which is why I'm bearish on their ability to do the right thing. Now, what I'm bullish on is it's never been a better time if you're motivated and have the expertise either within yourself or in the adults around you to navigate this system of learning. It has never been a better time for the motivated or the aware to learn. You could be a kid and this is, and I want to be careful not to like oversell this, you know, like I've heard many, a billionaire be like a kid in Bangladesh with a computer is going to like. <laughs> we left the computer in the village. We came back three days later and they knew 18 languages. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's silly, but also not insane in the abstract. You talked about Ali Abdel, right? Like there, there is, it has never been a better time if you just know what you're looking for and have the discipline to learn. Right. And I don't have the answer to it, but I, that statement, I firmly believe. Well, why isn't it happening then? Because we've had YouTube for a long time now and, and our kids are getting dumber. So we have all this stuff that you're talking about. They are motivated to learn things. The kids in my house actually can go and learn something in 15 minutes and come back downstairs and tell you how to do it. I watch them do it all the time. It's not making them better at math. It's not making them like, you know, better at you are a, a chem major, right? How many chem majors are there in the United States right now in comparison to like poli sci and psychology are things that people take because they think they can get through easy. But this is the question. This is the question I, I that's on my mind, right? Which is... I, I, th I, it could be framed as a negative, like, oh man, it, we have all this great stuff. Why aren't we learning? There's certainly like I, I, on my worst days that I think about it negatively, 
but that's not going to help anybody. I think the question is like, all right, well, how do we frame it as a positive? Listen to what you just did, Rafi. With the government, oh yeah, you know, if the government can do stuff, why haven't they done it? Why aren't they doing it? And I say, okay, well, if the innovation sector has all this stuff going on and blah, blah, why haven't they done it? Well, I don't know, but you know, I'm, I'm okay with the fact that, you know. <laughs> but I, I'm grouping them together. Yeah. You know, when I talked about like the, the technology and like the improvement to the online learning platforms and content, yada, yada, yada. I mean that for all kids, whether you're in a traditional public school or not. And I, I think that there's something interesting. Like I'm, I'm fascinated by, for instance, like some of the things happening in homeschooling in particular, because it's a, it's an experiment being run about how do you just find another way to perhaps structure a kid's learning. And I don't know whether it's going to be good or bad. I'm just interested in what happens there. And like, so if, you know, if you gave me an 11 year old and the access to all the resources that exist online right now, it would be a fascinating project to be like, well, how fast can I get this kid to be doing advanced math? How fast can I get this kid to be doing advanced science and and literature and yada, yada, yada. And that's like the question is like, it doesn't have to be decoupled from the traditional public schools. And actually like that's not a luxury we can afford. There's no world that exists where we don't have those schools playing the most important role in the life of kids. Now you're making my point in a way, because I mean, this is what I'm thinking. I am so the innovation guy. Like I feel bad pushing back on everything that you're saying right now, just because it's been, if anybody follows me or reads my writing, it's what I've been saying for years. I've been that guy. Like things need to happen outside of the traditional system. I'm bearish about the system itself. I did the whole government run schools thing. I, you know, I did my whole tour of the like Friedman kind of stuff and whatever. I did that whole thing. And it's old to me and tired now because it actually didn't produce. We had all this technology and all of this stuff going on during the pandemic. And two college educated parents in a house still had kids that fell behind. They fell behind less than everybody else did, but they had all the world's tools at their at their 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 fingertips. And there's even people in my own life that had two college educated people at home, some of whom are accountants and other things or whatnot, and their kids still still fell behind. And all that they could wish for was that the schools would open back up so that they could put their kids back in the schools. And that changed me because I was thinking like. We were waiting for this moment when all the kids would be out of the main schools and the innovation sector could take over. And, you know, we had all this stuff, con and blah, 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 whatever. And I literally watched, you know, college educated parents who talk a good game about choice and all that stuff just wait for the schools to open up again so that they could put their kids back in the schools, the regular schools. What that did for me was I haven't lost my affection for innovative things. And I hope what you're saying is true, that in 2024, some of those things show a scalable big win. Like a, not a bunch of like small little petty grants going to one parent or another to start some little, you know, 15 kid thing or whatever, some scalable big win for the innovation sector this year, not just passing policies by stealth in states that don't want them, but you have the political might and muscle and money to make it go through, but a real scalable win. Until then, I think what could be a good strategy is to realize, number one, some states are better than others. This whole thing about government-run schools and they're all the same and blah, 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 whatever, that's a nationalist perspective that makes no sense because there's going to be a big difference between what Governor A and Governor B and Governor C do, and they're going to show different learnings. You're going to learn different things from different policies. That's the science-based approach to me. So putting some money behind leveraging what schools and what districts are going to do the best and moving away from the ones that are doing the worst 
right? Like there's just going to be some, some governors that are going to make bad decisions. There are going to be some governors that make good decisions better than the other states. And we should be leveraging, we should put money to leverage them to do a better job. Like, like if I had a million dollars to spend right now, I would look for a system that was going to be a high, high probability of winning system and go there to see what I could prove and leverage and leverage public dollars. Like, you, you know, you're a governor, you're going to have a ton of public dollars. If I help you accelerate those dollars you're already spending, I help you be smart. I help you think like a good leader. And, you know, you've, you've got $100 million in this thing, and I give you like $5 million that might be able to make you like pull a different lever and do something different. Now I have a, a scalable return on investment that's bigger than a, a bunch of this moonshot stuff that I've been investing in forever. Like moonshots like sound great until you're like 10 million, 100 million in and you haven't like moved anything. Right. And I think a lot of philanthropy has that feeling right now of like, man, we have spent like a good bazillion million dollars on some things and the system still as stable as ever. It moves on. So maybe from in 2024, for me, like a good outcome would be a mix of all these things. Like the innovation sector has to keep moving forward. They do. There just needs to be like a skunk works of education. There does need to be a group of people. And maybe it's these people that you're saying, like the ESA folks you know, the homeschoolers, the micro schoolers, all that stuff. And maybe their metric should be what I said, like a big scalable win. Um, and if they don't hit that metric at the end of the year in 2025, we can say, okay, you had a full year to like do this moonshot thing. And what did it produce? I think that there is, if I'm, if I'm assessing where we are right now, the clear positive right now is content has never been better. And also the conversation around content, like the science of reading is a good example of this. We know more, there's more, both, I think there are better decisions being made about content at the school level, but also we have more good content available to students for free than ever before or at low cost. That is, we've never had better content. That's really good. That is the asset that I think we should, we should keep in mind when we try to build systems and schools and relationships in our school systems and outside of our school systems, because we can say, all right, we just got to get the kids to that content in an organized way. That's great. That is actually something we couldn't have always said. The problem is on the other areas, our politics have never been worse around schools. The teaching profession has, you know, there's a lot of questions about how bad really is it? I mean, I've spent the past year or two trying to figure this out. It does seem like we're in a bit of a crisis, especially depending on where you live with the teaching profession. And then the third is student attention spans and adult attention spans, all of us, have never been shorter. So you have all this content. This gets to what you're talking about your kids. But we're, we're worse and worse at paying attention, sitting down and, and like tackling difficult subject material and sticking with problems and sticking with content and building that knowledge. So, you know, what are we, one, out, one for four, one for five and what I just talked about? So that's tough. And so I, when I think about like, how do we solve this, so we have to solve each one of those issues to build a strong school system and they're enormous problems. And so I, I don't claim to know the answer, but that's kind of how I think about it right now. It's great that the content is, is strong, but it won't matter if we don't solve those other issues. You know, it's so funny because, you know, in our last show, when we were talking about gamification and I was bullish on, and I still am, on gamifying education and finding new ways to gamify 
That's something that could take place in the schools and outside of the traditional system. That's something that could take place everywhere, right? Like if I'm a homeschooler, I could like gamify homeschooling as, as one of my methods. If I'm a district school, I could do that. Like our district could gamify. And I think solutions like that, that actually can find their scaling in all of the different ways in which kids are going to be schooling or not schooling, to me, sound really important. So how those survive a year where nobody's going to care about unsexy education issues, to me, is really important. But I do want to like stick with this one main point. The things that have always been important to school reform are still important to me, and they have no champions right now. We used to care about whether or not something could scale. And we just don't care anymore about the only thing that we want to scale now is choice. But we don't like you, you mentioned the science of reading. The science of reading is great if it scales, if more districts st- stop making dumb curricular decisions. But school choice isn't going to stop people from making dumb curricular choices. As a matter of fact, much of the homeschool market is littered with really crappy curriculum really crappy content aimed at homeschooling parents. So the science of reading is great if people believe it and start scaling it at some point, just like, you know, polio vaccines were great at some point, as long as people adopted them and were taking them and using them. So the things that used to matter to reform scale, curriculum adoption, data-driven instruction, assessments, how you use it to drive achievement, student achievement and student outcomes. I've just named like five things there that used to matter to all of us that I don't think there's any hope or any future for education if we stop letting those things matter. Those things have to still matter no matter what you pitch to me. So we can do Shark Tank, me, Chris and Chris and Ravi, and then we'll add a couple more people like maybe Doug and, and a few other people. And we're like Shark Tank. And all the people are coming in with their Shark Tank proposals. And some of them are ed tech. Some of them are choice. Some of them are different things. But, you know, you and I are looking at like, okay, I'll give you $500,000. Like I'll invest in your thing or whatnot. I know I'm investing in nothing that doesn't address some of those five things I just said about that have always mattered to school reform folks. Like if you don't have those embedded in your widget, I'm going to say, well, Ravi might be, I'm out. (laughs) Ravi might be your guy on this one. I I think on the scaling front, I think part of the reason why people don't talk about scale as much anymore is because it's so much to wrap your arms around, especially if you're just, you know, one person in the system, right? So you're, you know, and most you could open your own school. Right. And you don't, when you're open to school, you're not really thinking about scaling. You're, you're thinking about shrinking the world to this one place that you have some semblance of influence over to help make it great. And that alone is hard. I mean, it's the hardest thing I ever did was starting a school. And it's a, it's a nearly impossible task every single day to keep a, a school running well. And so I think for a lot of people, they want to shrink their world and I don't blame them. Like they're saying like, look, I can't control the politics. I can't control what other people do. I can control at best what my kid does. And that that's really hard. You're a parent. Uh, I can at least influence it. Control is probably the wrong word. And then I can maybe if I'm involved in the system, I can create a strong classroom or I can just create a strong, strong school maybe. But beyond that, it's really hard to have impact beyond that. And I actually think that's okay. Like for people, I, I think that, Shrinking your world is a logical response to the world we live in, in my opinion, because it's it's hard to operate at scale for anybody. If you're a billionaire, it's hard to operate at scale. Never mind if you're you know the average person listening to this podcast. So I don't blame people for not thinking about scale. I don't blame people for that. I do think that there has to always, in any industry or any place, there always has to be people that think bigger than everybody else. And you know what? It was really interesting about the philanthropists, and I've said this for years, 
Having dealt with many different philanthropies, it's interesting in how they made their money, how it affects how they think about their giving decisions and how they they judge their giving decisions. If you think about Walmart, Walmart figured out a way to take logistics to a whole nother level, to be able to deliver things to places that didn't used to get those things, right? Like Walmart trucks were the first ones rolling water to the victims of Hurricane Katrina, because they had a better logistics system than almost anybody else, right? So if you think about like delivering education and you think about Walmart, now people are going to hate me for this, like listening to this or whatever. But if you think about the Walmart model of business and how they made their money, it was being like getting things to people in a very standardized way. Like I could be in Indiana or I could be in Los Angeles and I, I both of us are getting the same macaroni and cheese and the same whatever. And that's something that didn't exist before then. If you think about the Gates people, they're very technical. They understand technical things. They've been very technical in a lot of ways. And a lot of Microsoft and a lot of tech things required a lot of trial and error, but like thinking about the big thing, not thinking about the small things. And they have a more science-based approach and people hate or love it. You could, I tend to enjoy it, just be very honest with you because I like smart people. But you don't always win when you're trying to do code, when you're trying to create the next Windows 95. Sometimes you have losses or whatnot, but each iteration of Windows actually got better and better and better until today when it's a much better product than like Vista. Vista was terrible to a lot of people, right? And if you would have stopped there and said, oh, you failed or whatnot, that's not the tech mentality. If you think about Netflix, right? Like, and and what used to be Blockbuster. I mean, there's just a discipline to each of these philanthropies that I think is interesting in how they give. And I hope they all stay the course of paying attention to what I just said. All those things that worked in the private sector, one of the arguments we have always made was those were the things that you could learn from in the public sector and in the public schools. Not to replace everything or or whatever, but I think the name of the game may not be scale, it's leverage. What system can you leverage to reach the most number of kids if you got it right? Like if you did something good, what's the biggest play that you can make? I understand some people want to shrink their world. It's gotten too complicated for people. Listen, developing windows was too complicated for people. Developing logistics systems and retail was too complicated for some people. And that's why there's a whole bunch of small mom and pop stores that don't exist anymore. Right. And that's why there is a Walmart. Because, you know, (laughs) that strategy is great if you want to run a mom and pop hardware store. But if I beat you on logistics, I leverage a bigger system than yours. I leverage a bigger, better system than yours. I'm going to win. And I just, I hope silently away from the politics that people are still thinking that way about having a big future win in education. It's going to come down to some of those same things like a, a tech ability, logistics, understanding systems, how systems work, and leveraging the biggest systems that you can possibly leverage with smaller amounts of money. Right. Like if I could put a million dollars in one county that could do real damage, let's say I had 15 Harvard grads. Well, maybe Harvard's not the right place to talk about these days because a lot of people are getting down on Harvard. But let's say I had some really smart Ivy guys in a room and I said, I'm going to give you a million dollars. I want you to go to Contra Costa County and see what you can. What's the biggest win you could have for a million dollars leveraging that system? What's the most number of kids you could get to good? with that. It's a competition. Make it happen. And the one, each, whoever, whoever does this first, I'll give you $15 million, right, to do this. I bet you that would be a better plan than spending $100 million on something that has no science behind it, you know, whatsoever. Now, you're Ivy guy. What, you know, if I gave you that challenge, if I sent you to Contra Costa County and said, I want you to study the county, I'm going to give you a million dollars, and I'm going to put another guy just like you, and I'm not going to tell you who he is, 
and he's going to be doing the same thing. And you guys compete to see who can come up with the best kind of plan. I'm confident in you, Ravi. Do you feel very fairly confident that you could hit a big win like that, leveraging a system like that? Yeah, I don't know the county, but but you would. Uh, yeah, I, I would <laughs> yeah. hope so. I mean, I, I mean, I feel like I've most of my adult life has prepared me for a project like that, and I also would caveat that by saying that, as we've talked about in previous segments, there's a lot of humility you'd have to go into a project with that in terms of the many the graveyard of many well-intentioned people who've come in with similar structure who have failed and really smart people who have failed and so the question is what would make me different that's the question i would come in and ask and i think that there are bright spots you know when we talked about turnarounds or takeovers or yada yada camden is a good example we didn't spend a lot of time talking about what paymon did in camden but there have been examples of people who've come in and have done remarkable work to turn around school districts and i think that they're not these accidental moments i actually think that they they did things that were really meaningful so, yeah, I mean, one, I'm sure one day I will do such a project. I do think that there are a lot of tools at people's disposal that aren't being used right now, but that's a whole other episode. You know what? I'm glad that you mentioned Camden, though, because in examples like that, you and I probably know of more than one example like that where something good did happen in a city or a place. They're very smart people behind those. Like we know some of the actors and the players in those situations, and those were the result of some very smart people coming to a place and doing a thing and having the backing to be able to do it. That, to me, is where my money is. That's where my bet is. I, I don't think that's over. I don't think the days of that happening are over. I think the days of that like couldn't be more necessary now to have more of that stuff going on. Now, people are going to disagree with me. There's a lot of people that hate reform of any sort. There's a lot of people that don't think outsiders should be coming in to do anything or whatever. I can be as critical as I want to be, but in each of those wins that you just mentioned, there are people with names that we know who are very smart, who went in and took on a project. They took on a play and they had the backing to do it. They had the assistance that they needed to do it. And it's not durable forever. I'm not saying like, it, it sure is better than nothing. It sure is better than like letting your wheel spin and having a entire district or city or state wallow in failure for years and years and years without some intervention of smart people with resources. Uh, coming in and doing something. I know we we're going to talk about predictions today. And, you know, we've predicted that it's going to be a tough year. We've predicted that it's going to be a tough political year. And it's going to probably be even tougher for my side of the fence, science-based education thinkers. Emily Freetag has something I think people should go and read. She just put published it three days ago. So look back on predictions for 2023 and new predictions for 2024. Her predictions for this year were that the ones that she says that worked, that were that she she was right about were that conversations about reading instruction was going to keep heating up and she got that one right because of the sold a story and you know lots of other things surrounding kind of advocacy in in science of reading she was right about that one she also predicted this year that we will learn a lot more about what ai can and cannot do for instruction and she feels like she was correct about that one she said that student learning outcomes would improve overall, but the trend lines will be choppy. She says, she says, you know, she uh, kind of a nope on that one, but she's got some more background of what, how she came to whether or not she thinks that happened. 
Some stuff around ESSER, the spin down frenzy will begin. Every problem schools face will have highly marketed solutions that can be purchased with remaining ESSER funds, but it's going to be kind of choppy the way that people spend their remaining ESSER funds. And I think, you know, she's given herself a meh on that one. But there are things that she said that she got completely wrong were around ESSER, she, around AI making teacher and leader roles easier and support students better in reading, science, and social studies. She believes that she got that wrong. The growing math wars will include battles over the appropriate role of flashcards and memorization and multiplication facts. That is a weird prediction to have had. And she thinks that she was wrong about that. What I think is interesting about this list, and I do encourage people to go read it, I could run through them really quickly, but these are actually education predictions. These are things about- And where are those, by the way? So she has an article called The Look Back on Predictions for 2023 and New Predictions for 2024. It's a medium article she uh, publishes in Medium. And you know I think it's interesting to go take a look at these things, because if you look at all her stuff, she talks about education. And I do, and you do. But these things that I just mentioned are about the mechanics of education. These are about actual education. These aren't about the politics or the, the what I said earlier, like the tabloid thinking around these things. There is such a thing as ESSER. There is such a thing as high quality instruction. There is a, such a thing as curriculum adoption processes being broken. Maybe the public doesn't want to talk about those things. Maybe they don't. Maybe it's just not sexy. But I do think that people who are in education advocacy should be staying focused on those things because that is what education is. And if my prediction for 2024 is rosy at all, it's that the people like you, me, Emily, and the smart people that we said went into Camden and others won't go away. Our focus won't shift away from the thing that we always knew, that the science of education is ed education. If I have a down market thing, it's many of our friends and family who actually have felt that way in the past will see that it's sexier to go for things that are kind of up the moment. Like they have no kind of education science behind them, but they are the flashy thing of the moment. Anyways, what's your final word, Robbie? For 2024, I gave my up and down. What's your up and down for the year? I mean, my down is very obvious. I mentioned that. I think the up is, I do think on the individual level, there's going to be a lot of cool stuff happening, like kids and parents just deciding on their own what to do. Like, this is not a point about homeschooling anymore, just about like the person just trying to figure stuff out, whether it's in the back of a classroom or a teacher in a classroom trying to like get around whatever bureaucracy and do the right thing or, or a kid who's like, you know, finish their material in their AP biology class and wants to keep going. Like I am as bullish about that as I've ever been. Well, you know, this is, you know, compliment to you as always, you know, I feel this way about you. Like what I would be shooting for as a parent, I would want more kids like Ravi. I want my, I have three high school students right now. I want them to be on the Ravi path. I want them to become more <laughs> like you than like me because my path was, was crazy and crooked and did not end up the way that it should have ended up. And your path was more science-based. You, I, you just said it today. I did not know this, that you were like a chem major or whatever. When I think about serious students, like chem majors and people who are building the next world and who are going to do like every society needs these people and how do we get more of them and how do we get more of them out of places where we don't normally get them, like, you know, marginalized kids. That's the stuff that's heavy on my mind. And I would prefer more Robbies than citizen stewards in the world because of <laughs> it, because I think it just would be better for the country and for the nation. I hope in 2024, we could just stay on that for a little bit. Like, how can we get more kids going on the STEM path, the chem path, the society builders path? 
rather than kind of playing around with the Trump versus Biden nonsense all year. Anyways, that's not going to happen, but I just, you know, it's what I wish for, for 2024. For all of you guys listening to the Citizen Stewart Show, always appreciate you and appreciate your comments that you've given to us over 2023. It was a good year, I think, in growth. And I think the show has some growing to do and some improvements that to be made based upon what we heard from you over the year. And we're just hoping for a better year in 2024 for education, for kids, for politics, for science, for all of the things. Appreciate you as always. We'll catch you on the next episode of The Citizen Stewart Show. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show. 